This is the Podcast Inc. production. Booyah! This is the moment podcasting fans listening around the world have been waiting for. Coming to you not so live from a listening device of your choice. It's time! Podcasting out of this corner, a mixed martial talker, holding no professional record. He stands at six feet one and one half inches tall, weighing in at whatever he feels like, hailing out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, presenting the sometimes angry, always funny, Self-proclaimed podcasting champion of the world, Steve Fingerstyles! So, welcome to another rendition of the podcast. I am here once again, always again, and brought to you by First Row Collectibles. If you're into nerd culture, if you're into wrestling memorabilia, if you're into sports memorabilia, please visit firstrow.ca. Use promo code THEPODCAST20. You'll get 20% off. They got a ton of stuff over there from old comic books to signed wrestling memorabilia, signed sports memorabilia from any of the top leagues. You want it, they got it. They update daily. They ship worldwide. So please visit firstrow.ca. If you're into video games and books, please visit bossfightbooks.com for great books on classic video games. You'll find titles like Super Mario Bros. 3, NBA Jam, Kingdom Hearts 2, and so many others. Everything you see on their website is available in paperback and ebook format. So please check them out at bossfightbooks.com. And if you want to support me directly, you can visit my merchandise store at tpublic.com. Or scroll down on today's device. It's embedded right there in the description. Click on that link. It takes you right to the merchandise store. I got everything from hoodies to t-shirts to travel mugs. Anything you need or want, it is there. But the best thing, the easiest thing, the freest thing to do to support the show is rate, subscribe, review on all major platforms. Most specifically, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. So this week, I'm joined by an author and writer whose work you may have seen in Wired, The Washington Post, Kotaku, and Electronic Gaming Monthly, to name just a few. Hugo Award winner, Aiden Moher. Hello, thank you so much for having me today. No, thank you for being here. It is a pleasure, it is an honor. I've never had a Hugo Award winner on this podcast, so you are the first. And before we get anywhere, so people know, what is this illustrious Hugo Award and what do you win? Yeah, so the Hugo Award is one of the uh, major science fiction and fantasy awards uh, given out alongside like uh, awards like the Nebula, oh, so okay. they uh, yeah, so they're one of the kind of top awards in the field, and the That's Hugo awesome. Award specifically is like a fan driven award, and it's voted on by members of the World uh, Fantasy Convention uh, oh. every year. Okay. And so fans are involved; fans are the ones that vote, and so you know it has a really long history going back decades, and oh, it just uh, it rewards sort of the the, the best uh, in the field of science fiction and fantasy. And one of the things that I really love about it is that it has 
fan-centric awards. And so it has, you know, it has best novel. It has, uh, you know, uh, best editor. It has best short story, but it also has best fanzine, which is what I won, mm-hmm. uh, gosh, almost 10 years ago in 2014 oh, for shit, my blog, A Dribble of Ink. Okay. It also has best fan writer. It has best fan artist. Um, oh, and it has deep. best fan cast now for, for podcasts. Okay. Uh, and cool. so, like, it really it has this focus on the fan community in addition to the professional community. Mm-hmm. And it's honored and awarded, uh, you know, a rocket, the the trophy is a big shiny rocket, oh, and it's, nice. it's given out a lot to some some pretty amazing people over over the decades. Uh, and I'm pretty, uh, you know, pretty proud to be among those uh, for for the work that I, I did uh, and continue to do in the science fiction and fantasy community. Okay, now you said you won it ten years ago. Now, ten years ago, obviously, you did not know and write as much stuff as you have a decade later. <laughs> do you think that work that one still holds up, and you're still proud to show it off? Yeah. So. I won it for my blog, A Dribble of Ink, which was quite a popular blog about science fiction and fantasy, mostly books, but, you know, I also branched into video games. I also branched into film and television. So I I covered sort of the gamut of geek culture. Geek culture has grown a lot in the past decade, right? Uh, But I started it in 2007, so that was 16 years ago. If you roll all the way back to 2007... Uh, I don't know if that stuff holds up very well. I did a lot of, you know, I I was pretty young. I was fresh out of university. That's what I'm saying. Uh, Yeah, you know, I was 23 at the time. (laughs) And I learned a lot in public. You know, I learned a lot as I went. And so there's some stuff there that I look back on. I'm like, "Eh, I wouldn't publish that now. Or you know what? I can see the seeds of what my career would become. But is it good? I I don't know. But people (laughs) liked it at the time, right? And that speaks to where you know, the fan community was and, and what readers wanted. And I think readers were really hungry for in-depth, long-form discussion of, like, books and stuff. And, and um, over the course of those seven years that I ran a dribble of ink, it closed in 2015. By the end, I, yeah, I, I'm still absolutely proud of the work that I did over that, that course. And specifically, by the end of a dribble of ink's lifespan, and I think what people really, why it was so successful is mm-hmm. I um, I wasn't just a writer, I was also an editor, and so I did a lot oh. of curation, a lot of, um, you know, seeking out writers sure. uh, and stories to bring into, uh, you know, the platform and give that, that audience uh, to stories and people that I felt deserved it. And so... I'm really proud of the work I did as an editor. And that's the stuff that I think holds up really well. Do I, you know, like you can go back and read some of my, my book reviews and I think they're, yeah, they're, they're okay. Uh, but the stuff, the guest posts and the guest essays and the features and stuff that I, that I was able to like curate and help bring to life and, and give life. Uh, that's the stuff that I'm really proud of uh, nine years later. Now, do you think, okay. Cause obviously everyone knows blogs aren't as big as they used to be, obviously, yeah. because uh, and it's probably because of podcasts. Cause to me, I think a blog is like the original written podcast. If you think about it. Right. So it's like, do you think blogs will ever be as popular or even have like a sort of niche where people could still survive off it? I mean, I think they still have a, they still have a, a niche where you can have a you know you can have a blog you can have a platform that has you know a really dedicated audience uh a regular audience and if your goal is to write and reach you know people that are interested in the same things as you are i think you can still do that there are there are blogs out there that i still read oh, okay. uh i think they've sort of morphed into in a lot of cases they've morphed into newsletters oh. and i think that you know like this, this is this could be a whole podcast on its own but i think um the way that social media has sort of taken over Mm -hmm. 
um, has eaten a lot of long form written content, right? Okay. So something like Twitter or Reddit, you can't really replicate what you have on a, uh, on sure. a podcast, right? You can't yeah. like, you can't steal that. You can't thread a podcast <laughs> on Twitter, but Twitter in specific and, and Reddit, they all want, you know, they want links out, but they want all of the discussion to happen on their platform. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so that, that hurt blogs a lot getting rid of you know google killing uh reader hurt blogs a lot mm. so like communities don't and can't form as easily on blogs as they used to and so i think like the newsletters are really interesting because they give a direct path from writers to their audience directly mm-hmm. without having to go through something like twitter or reddit to yeah. to reach them um and so i think like you know in spirit i think blogs still exist in a lot of different forms uh just not in the way that they did in 2007 where it was like you know i i own i had my website it was aidenmoher.com slash blog mm. uh where you can still find a dribble of ink and people would come there and they'd have a bookmark and they'd come there daily to see if i posted something new when they'd leave a comment you know and when i first started out i would write something and i'd write a review or i'd write you know some response to some news that came out or i'd leak a book cover and then three other blogs would, would post uh, <laughs> their own thoughts and they, you know, right. responses to, to what I had written exactly. or I would be responding to other blogs. You know, that stuff still happens just in different formats now. Um, so do I think, you know, the, the, the blogosphere of 2007 is coming back? Probably not. But do I think that, you know, that space has been filled? Uh, I think pretty admirably, admirably. There's lots of, lots of great content, lots of good long form written content out there. Um, it's true. Can you make it a go at it in terms of like doing it professionally like i think you need a lot of luck a lot of a lot of networking a lot of uh a lot of things to fall out right um you know back when i ran our dribble of ink it was almost impossible to monetize a blog like i was hand selling ads to publishers Mm -hmm. and like and then it got to a point where i was like i can't maintain this like i have a full-time job i had a new baby i can't be writing a hundred thousand words a year on a blog and hand selling you know (laughs) advertisements to to publishers and chasing down that kind of stuff. So, you know, nowadays you have stuff like Patreon, which is probably, you know, like, is it somebody's Patreon with a bunch of lock content and essays and stuff like that? Is that much different than, than a blog? Like not really. Right. Or if you have a newsletter that, you know, somebody treats as their, you know, little publishing bubble. Um, I think that counts. Right? It just looks different. Well, and that's the thing so, about, especially the generation we're in now, where you could consume media any which way or form. It's like, yeah. is there really a specific way? Like, you can now listen to podcasts on TV, whereas 10 years ago, no one would fathom you could listen to a podcast on a TV. Like, you know what I mean? So it's just yeah. all these things. And even like, in, especially my generation, I'm sure same thing for with you because we're not too far apart. But like the whole thing of magazines, like our generations were pretty much the last ones that yeah, yeah. love the smell, the touch, running to yeah. a place and flipping through like a video game magazine. Like, you know what I mean? Like this generation now yeah. doesn't care and doesn't even want it. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I just went out and bought a physical gaming magazine. Oh my goodness. Look um, at that. The other day because I, uh, <laughs> I actually, I, I just held up an, an issue of Game Informer uh, and I have a piece in the latest Game Informer and I, nice. I got a copy of it. And I was like, this is so nice reading a magazine, not right? just because my story is in there, but like flipping through it in bed, right? Like reading about video games and like not games that I would normally seek out. Like the internet lets us curate what we read so much, it's right? True. Like I only read about the games that I have like a vested interest in. Whereas yep. like I'm picking up this issue of a magazine, I'm like reading about a game that I have no real like connection to, right. but I'm reading it anyway because it's there, and I'm mm. like, oh, that was kind of cool. So I actually like went out to the store 
and bought a physical magazine because they still had the the previous issue of Game Informer. So I bought that one, and it's about you know Dead Island Two is on the cover, and that's not a nice. game I would ever consider buying, right, but. Right. You know, picking it up and, and sitting there and reading a big long feature with screenshots and like intentional layout—it's just it. There really is something to that 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 I think is a, you know, uh, it's not you just don't you can't replicate that on a screen not yet at least and not for me. No. People, you know, I mean, I mean, I sound old. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, don't worry, I'm know, the we, same way. Every generation has has you know has their things and and you know it's not like like the the uh, newer generations are growing up with a whole magazine shaped hole in their heart because they have other things exactly. again like coming back to like yeah it all <clears throat> that content ecosystems there just looks different um right. but that doesn't make me miss magazines any less uh just because i can get you know great features digitally um or via like audiobook or whatever like the one thing i love too about, about physical form is everything could be different in shape size thickness like just the small details from game pro being like folded to electronic gaming monthly being like a squared like like you know what i mean like just those little nuances like because i grew up on game pro and then electronic gaming monthly came after right and even like N nintendo power same thing it's sort of like the same format so anything in like uh that type of format to me seemed like an encyclopedia i did not want it felt more like too adulty for me like if that makes sense you know what i mean so you don't get that in like an ebook reader like every book looks the same you're flipping the page the font looks the same like it's i don't know man Again, it's just we're just old. I love my Kindle. I read a lot of books on it, <laughs> but there's something there is something there about sort of the, the tangible act of picking up a, a book, a physical book, and, and looking through it. I'm actually, you know, you're sponsored by Boss Fight Books. I've been reading a ton of Boss Fight books right love now. Them all. Um, get, you know, getting the physical copies uh, quickly is isn't. Uh, isn't easy, especially in Canada, because I have to like have to order them. Take a few days. I understand. You know, <laughs> but like some of them are, are short, and and that comes back to like what you're talking about, like sort of being able to have this like you know variety of how we we receive stories and content. And, and Boss Fight puts out some of these books that are are quite short, so I'm reading them very quickly, and it's, it yeah. is nice, you know. The convenience of being able to just download the next one for four ninety nine is like you know that's there, but do I miss sitting there and, and reading and flipping through an actual book? Like yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. No, I totally okay. Well, speaking of books and writing and everything, when did this path come for you? When did you want to be a writer? Was this always in the works since you were, I guess, a little one? Yeah, it was. My dad's a writer, so he's a playwright and a journalist. Oh, nice. So, okay. Um, I grew up in that environment. My uh, my mom's a reader. Like I grew up in a house, there's thousands and thousands of books in my wow. parents' house, That's and so awesome. I grew up surrounded by words. Um, and it was never really like, oh, I want to become a writer. Okay, it was just something that was just part of life. Like it doesn't really, I don't really know anything other than that. Mm. Um, and so you know, from from the earliest days, you know, in elementary school, I was writing stuff for class. You know, and I look forward to those writing assignments and. Sure. And stuff, and you know, I got out of uh, university, and I needed something to do uh, with this web design. Like, I went for for web design, web development, okay. and I was like, okay, I can build myself a website. I can put together a blog really quickly. Sure. And because I had been part of like uh, some online communities for uh, fantasy books, like Terry, specifically the Terry Brooks uh, forum, I somehow ended up with a 
review copy of an upcoming Terry Brooks book. Oh, okay. And so I was like, okay, like this is kind of cool. I could build myself a blog. I've got this book that's coming out. I could write a review of it, post it on Terry Brooks forum, right? Mm. Like, you know, it would be kind of cool to, you know, basically show off to my friends on that forum. Of course. And so I did that and, you know, started up a blog. And there were a few other like fantasy focused, science fiction focused blogs that I enjoyed. So I sort of modeled what I wanted to do off them, uh, interviews and, and reviews and stuff like that. But it was sure. mostly like as a playground to test out, you know, web development. That's what I was kind of thinking of doing professionally. And that is what I do professionally. My day job is as a, as, as a web developer still, um, which I love. And I just combined them on this WordPress site. And at that time, like even way back then, I, I had the foresight to put it at uh, my own, like, subdomain so it was always at aidenmoher.com slash blog i always wanted it you know i never wanted it to be separate from from me separated from me sure. uh so it was like it could just combine those two things and and i was you know writing and i i think i kind of carved off a niche early for for you know this long form approach to to how we talk about books and then i was also just really aggressively online and so i would also you know like leak book book covers a lot like i would scour publisher databases for okay. like book covers that hadn't been released sure. and stuff and so that got a lot of traffic and i was you know like chronically online so i would you know be the blog that would often just break news right sure. and so things things uh were taking off with twitter around the same time ah. and so the growth of like my blog was very much tied up with twitter okay. and being able to be like the first one and then be the link that everybody was posting you know on social yeah. media yeah yeah um yeah, so, and I mean, it just kind of grew up from there. And then, you know, I ran the blog for a while. I went to Hugo. Uh, and just when, you know, like, you would think, like, oh, okay, now things are just getting started. And that's when I decided to close A Dribble of Ink because it, um, I kind of saw the writing on the wall for a variety of reasons. And I had a, a young child. So my life was changing a lot. And I wanted to, you know, write less and earn more. <laughs> yeah, hey, makes so sense. So I, I, you know, I decided, okay, this is it. Like, this, I'm going to, like, shut down my blog. Focus on writing books. Uh, focus on doing like freelance, like journalism. Uh, that came a little later, actually. But uh, but yeah. So I started, and I had already written for a few different, like even as I was doing a dribble of ink, I, I wrote for a few different, like I wrote for the Barnes and Noble science fiction fantasy blog. I wrote oh, for yeah. Tor.com. and so I was like, okay, I can, I still have this platform. I can write for those, right. and um, and then it just started rolling from there. And then I kind of made the leap into games writing, like as a games journalist uh, in twenty. 19 oh okay so not too long um ago. yeah so not too long ago uh video games i mean my life has always been like you know like my interests were video games and, and fantasy books and writing like reading gotcha. and so like i it's always been those two things and and i i decided uh because of the communities i was in in 2007 were book related mostly for some reason i guess i guess because i could always envision myself making a book I wrote about books, mm. whereas video games were always sort of like a, a, just a hobby, right? Gotcha. I didn't picture myself being able to make video games. <laughs> and so they were always a hobby that I kind of wrote about a little bit on a dribble of ink, but right. not nearly as much as books. Uh, but then that changed because science fiction and fantasy writing at the time in 2015, 2014 didn't pay very well. Gotcha. And so um, I, you know, I was like, OK, like I, I have a lot of these stories that I can write about video games i you know and they pay a little bit better than games writing doesn't pay very well uh at the best of times but it pays a lot more than science fiction fantasy writing did at the time so yeah. i kind of made that jump and, and the ball's been rolling ever since so it's like there wasn't ever an inflection point there wasn't ever a time where i was like okay i'm gonna pursue this i'm gonna become a writer yeah. um schooling wise education wise I, I you know i 
I went into tech, um, which I've, you know, my dad was an early adopter of tech as well. So it was like, you know, it's just sort of following the environment and the influences that were in the household that I grew up in uh, to, to where I am now. And now I write about tech. So kind of like it all. It, yeah, exactly. I was just going to say it all circles around, right? But okay, so is Fight Magic Items your first official novel that you've dropped? Yeah, it's my first, like, it's my first book. Or book uh, or whatever. I have, yeah. like, um, I have published, I published a uh, small ebook of short stories back in okay. 2015, I think. Um, but that was self-published and it was it was quite short. So Fight Magic Items is my first, like, book length uh, project. So how was uh, it transitioning from, like, articles and, like, blogs to, like, a full-fledged, yeah. like, yeah. again, I, I didn't check yeah. the page yeah. worth, but, you like, you know what I mean? To have, like, plus, I would assume, over 200 yeah. pages, right? Yeah, it's 320 pages. There you go. 100, 110,000 words. <laughs> Shit. Uh, and, like, for, con- you know, for... For context, if I wrote a feature, like I wrote, like I said, my, my most recent one was in Game Informer, and it was a, okay. a fairly long one. It was 3,000 words. Okay, that's so, like, still you know, you're looking at however many of that is, 30, 40-ish, uh, 35, 40 uh, features like that. Wow. Uh, it was it, it was a challenge, um, mostly because my editor, or my publisher, and I settled on a fairly aggressive timeline. We wanted oh. to get the book out. Okay. Last year, last fall, because Final Fantasy VII was turning 25 years old, so there it was like go. perfect, yeah. like anniversary to get out a, a history of Japanese RPGs. And so we, you know, we settled on a, a fairly quick timeline. I wrote the book in about three and a half months, which was wow. which was not yeah, That's crazy. which was not something that I would recommend people do. <laughs> um, I had written I had written 15,000 words for the pitch package that we sent around that my agent sent around to publishers, but otherwise, you know, I wrote. The first draft was 120,000 words. We edited it down to 110. So, you know, I wrote the majority of it, yeah, in three and a half months. That wow. was hard. Um, That's crazy. Wouldn't do that again. <laughs> uh, but the actual, like, writing of it, part of what my editor and I decided on early mm-hmm. <clears throat> was that I wanted the book to – it needed to have an overall narrative. And so it does okay. have an overall narrative. And that starts with, like, the creation of Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest in – Japan gotcha. looks at their creators and they're sort of the, the like the linchpins that hold everything together. So throughout the book, we're returning to these two like uh, game series that, you know, like more or less uh, created Japanese RPGs as people think of them, right? There were yeah. Japanese made RPGs before that. Um, but in the sort of style of Dra- Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy, which I think to a like more mainstream audience that is an easy thing to look at you look at final fantasy you look at dragon quest and you're like okay those are like those are japanese rpgs and a bunch of games came out of that right um and so the shape of the book always keeps coming back to to that so anything i chose to write about in the book it was like okay how is this influenced by final fantasy or how did this you know jump piggyback off final fantasy and dragon quest success or how did this in turn go and influence future final fantasy games right. so it always sort of came, came back to that okay uh, but in terms of like the actual like chapter by chapter structure i also specifically wrote every chapter to sort of stand on its own a little bit oh. um as though it's its own little feature about a game or okay. a person or a time or an event and so i knew that there would be people who would pick up the book and just want to read through and read about their favorite games oh, right smart and yeah. so I wrote it in a way that they could. You could look at the 
table of contents at the front and be like, yeah. oh, like I love Final Fantasy X. Like I really want to read that chapter and just skip to Final Fantasy X sure. and get a, a more or less complete experience. That's cool. And so I think that paid off really well in terms of like I was able to go in and outline like every chapter. I was like, okay, this is a chapter. This is a story it needs to tell. Here's its like rock solid outline. Right. And then then write it, it you know as its own sort of self contained thing. And you know like there are callbacks. There are like you know, instances in later chapters where if you know what happened and what we discussed earlier in the book, like you're going to get more out of it. But, um, but that definitely helped because I was able to take like, you know, the skills and the experience Mm -hmm. I've developed writing features, um, and just apply that to like each chapter and look at it like a little mini feature. Some of them, like the final fantasy seven chapter is like, I think 7,000 words long, I think (laughs) something like that. Some of the chapters are, you know, 1500, 1800 words long as well. So, you know, it, it runs the gamut and, um, the experience that I had as a as a features writer absolutely helped in that regard. So now, obviously, you know the next question: Is there going to be follow ups? Is there something else in the works? Do you want to drop yeah. another book, or is this it for you? No, I so I'm actively working on uh, my next book, which I think will appeal to okay, cool. to fans of Fight Magic items. Um, it's a go. different type of book. It's um smaller book, which is nice, and I have about, <laughs> I have like longer to write it. Uh, which is good as well. Uh, so it's shorter in, in word length, but uh, but it'll appeal, and it's the same type of book in terms of like it, it's really looking at creative projects and the people behind them, and and looking at what you know why creators create what they create, why fans love them so much. Um, and it, it's actually focused on a story that I really would have loved to tell and dig into more in Final, Fan- or Final Fantasy, <laughs> uh, in Fight Magic items, but it just wasn't, like, I, it, there wasn't room for it in the oh, book. Okay. Um, and so I, this was an opportunity that I saw uh, to be able to do that and take that story and, like, really tell it with the, you know, the length and depth that it deserves. And so it's been really fun working on that. Uh, so that I'm... About 60% through the first draft, uh, which is great and feels good, and it's coming together really well. Uh, And then my agent and I have a few other book proposal ideas that are in the cooker that I'm... One of them is pretty fully fleshed out. The other one I'm starting to work on compiling a list of, like, I need to do interviews. I need to kind of find... Like, I know, like, the broad sweep of the story. I know what I want to tell about the story, but Mm -hmm. I I need to know, like, history. You need to, like... You need to make sure that you have you know, like a foundation, a strong structure based on, you know, like the experience of the people that were there. Um, and so that's what I need to find for the second project. So it's like, I, yeah, I, I got a lot of projects. And then I have <laughs> fiction books as well. Like I have a, a fiction, a, a fantasy novel that's done and it's almost ready to be uh, out on proposal. I have another one that's about 60% finished. So uh, yeah, a lot, lot, lot more books, hopefully in the cooker uh, before long. That's awesome to hear. Okay, so is JRPG your favorite type of video game genre? Yeah, it is. Um, it's so JRPG is like a huge and like really difficult it is. label to pin down, and that's been a big topic of discussion in like sort of the gaming scene over the the beginning of this year. Like, there are people. So a few weeks ago, the the producer of Final Fantasy sixteen. Naoki Yoshida said uh, he didn't want people to call Final Fantasy 16 a Japanese RPG, a JRPG. Right. And it's like, people were like, well, how, how? What, like Final Fantasy, like people like look at it as like one of the, the foundational pillars of Japanese RPGs. Like, I think so. How can it not be a JRPG? Isn't like a JRPG 
whatever Final Fantasy is. Like, Final Fantasy is something that doesn't make it a JRPG. And so he further explained that, you know, like, uh, especially during what I refer to in the, the book as the Dark Ages, which is like the Xbox 360, PlayStation 3 era, mm. um, the genre really struggled to, like, move to, to home consoles, like the PS3 and the Xbox 360. Yeah. The, the transition to the HD era was really challenging for a lot of reasons oh. that I explain in the book. Okay. Um, the term Japanese RPG or JRPG was also brought up at that time and started to be used in a derogatory way um, against really? these games. Because, yeah, like there was this shift in, in like popularity, especially in the West, towards, okay. you know, Western-style games, Western-style uh, RPGs. And so, I, I mean, I never experienced or saw this. My, me yeah, and my me friends either. always loved JRPGs. Like, yeah. it was always like, we were like specifically seeking them out. But there was. And I, you know, I learned this through this conversation and listening to, okay. to writers like Gene Park talk about it. And he oh. said, like, you know, there was this huge contingent that, that used JRPG to label games as lesser or not worth exploring or not looking at. And so that's been really interesting to me um, and made me think about the term JRPG a lot. And, uh, you know, I say, like, yeah, JRPGs are my favorite genre for sure. Um, I'm playing Octopath Traveler 2 right now, and it's like a very classic style JRPG, right? Turn-based battles. Reminds me like, of Final Fantasy from the SNES days. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, it, yeah, it's like based off that mold of, like, the Final Fantasy 6s and the Chrono Triggers. Like, it feels yeah. very much, like, of that type. But I think JRPG as well as, like, the series and the or sort of the, as the genre has matured, it's more of sort of like, uh, it's not really so much a uh, like a binary label. Like, this is a JRPG or it's not. I think we're at the point where, like, something like JRPG is like a, uh, you know, it's, it's like a vibe. It's like a feeling. It's like a set of influences. It's something can, like, have JRPG influences, but it can also have fighting game influences, like sure. Final Fantasy sixteen, right? Something can, you know, like, you watch a lot of the, like character action games bringing in japanese rpg elements yeah, yeah. as well and you see japanese rpgs bringing in elements from other genres all over the place and so like i think like you know it's my favorite sort of style of game that turn-based rpg that like you know kind of came out of japan with final fantasy and, ja- and dragon quest like yeah i i love it do i like seeing JRPGs sort of influencing Western games and Western games in turn, like going back and forth and like influencing each other. Like, I think that's so fascinating. That, that idea of cultural exchange is, is really fascinating. And a core part of the book as well, the book ends sort of looking at JRPGs, and I'm doing air quotes. Okay. Uh, listeners can't hear it. I'm doing air quotes <laughs> for JRPGs because they're like games like Chained Echoes, which came out at the tail end of last year okay. and is excellent. Um, is made by a single German uh, creator. Wow. Uh, sea of Stars is uh, made by a Canadian studio, and it's oh, um, very it? obviously, like, very obviously and very openly influenced by Chrono Trigger. Okay. And so, like, you know, when you say JRPG, and you're like, oh, yeah, like, game like Final Fantasy, well, it's like, okay, those are absolutely games like Final Fantasy. Like, right. they wear their influences on their sleeves, but they're not Japanese, so are they JRPGs? See, right? and that's so what I've like, always wanted to know. Yeah, like, yeah. what so, makes a JRPG a JRPG? Does it have yeah. to be made in Japan? Because yeah. to yeah. me, JRPG was afterwards, like the PlayStation 1 era. Before that, yeah. it was either yeah. RPG or turn-based yeah. RPG. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's the only two yeah. labels we used to know about yeah. when, when yeah. we were kids. Yeah, so like some of these creators, like uh, the, the creative director of Sea of Stars, like he's gone back to using the term turn-based RPG to describe it and then saying okay. you know it's a turn-based rpg influenced heavily by chrono trigger and so oh, jrpg is, is gotcha. like you know it's 
it's a really useful label to like very quickly describe something because I think it gives a feeling to a lot of people. You know, of Final. If you say JRPG, I think Final Fantasy VI. But then there's people who you know were, you know, maybe growing up or, or getting into video games with the PlayStation Three and uh, Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty, and the term JRPG was you know a bit of a pejorative, and so it can it can work both ways and cut both ways. And I think what we're sort of realizing as a community is that the term JRPG is starting to fall apart because like, you know, like Demon Souls or Elden Ring is a JRPG. Right. It's, it's like an RPG made in Japan. Yeah. So is it a JRPG? But or is Chained Echoes, which is made in Germany mm-hmm. by a German guy, it's like closer to what we think of as a JRPG, but it's made by a German guy. Like you <laughs> right. know, so like, is it a regional descriptor? Is it a system like saying. description yeah. of system? So it's like, it's it's tricky. It's it's an interesting debate, and I, I feel like you know, even having written this book, it's like okay, there's still so much here to unpack and and to understand and. Um, I don't think you know. There's no, there's no shorthand anymore, right? Like, because you'd say turn-based RPG, but you look at something like um, Divinity, um, Divinity Two. Um, it's a turn-based RPG, Divinity mm-hmm. Original Sin Two mm-hmm. on the PC, right? It's like turn-based combat, and okay. Fallout was was turn-based. So it's like you know, mm-hmm. but Fallout is very obviously not a Final Fantasy style Japanese like RPG. So it's like yeah. we still need some sort of thing because like. Fallout and Final Fantasy VI are very different RPGs, right? Dragon, but then Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy sixteen, like they started out as almost like carbon copies of each other. But Dragon Quest eleven and Final Fantasy sixteen are very, very different games, right? Dragon Quest as a series has stayed sort of on a linear track and only okay. deviated and like experimented like a little bit here and there. But like Dragon Quest eleven feels very much like Dragon Quest one. Final mm. Fantasy 16 and Final Fantasy's whole thing has been reinventing itself oh, and pushing yes, the boundaries of like exactly. what can we do as like creators within this RPG space and redefining RPGs yeah. and now like the series is so different now. Um you know so how useful is that term JRPG? Uh well, it has yeah, been a really interesting sense. conversation. It's made me think a lot like you know how could I approach that if I were to you know write fight magic items again, right? Um People in Japan, creators in Japan don't call their games JRPGs. Just call them RPGs. Well, and then right. the other thing is now, every game nowadays has RPG yeah. elements. Yeah. So is RPG yeah. even fair to categorize it as that? Or should yeah. it be like a gameplay as like, just say, jumping yeah. or using a gun? Yeah, yeah. I, it's like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Right? right? <laughs> yeah, and like, you have games like Final Fantasy or series like Final Fantasy and like, Final Fantasy thirteen, like, one of the games that it's, uh, I can't remember who it was on staff, but it was, like, the director or the producer said, like, one of the influences on, on it was Call of Duty. What? And it was, like, yeah, right? And so, That's like, crazy. I don't know, like, you know, in the AAA space especially, <laughs> I think all games are sort of becoming the same game, right? They're all these, like, everything's coming, becoming, like, character action, sure. third, third-person character action games with, you know, RPG mechanics and, and grinding and, you know, weapon abilities mm-hmm. and you know, character customization and, and loadouts and all that kind of stuff, right? And they all trace back to, to RPGs. Right. And so, you know, these games like Assassin's Creed or Horizon or God of War, like, they trace their, a lot of their systems right back to the same place that Hironobu Sakaguchi and Yuji Horii were looking when they created Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest, right? So, like, the mm-hmm. systems that are in, all, all like, a lot of the AAA Western games, like, they come from Dungeons and Dragons, the same place that, you know, Hori and Sakaguchi were looking. Mm. Uh, so, you know, like, 
I do kind of feel like all games in the AAA space are becoming the same game. And how, like at that point, like what differentiates a, an RPG from a character action game with RPG elements, right? Like how far off really is Horizon going to be from Final Fantasy 16? And at, at what point, point do you say, okay, you can't just use this as a binary label, right? Like they both, they're both influenced and they both feature RPG elements, right. uh, even though their sort of goals are different or the, they both have these similar RPG elements, but the world is structured differently, right? Um, I mean, Horizon has a big open world with lots of different biomes, and Final Fantasy 16 is, is zone-based. So, like, you know, like, which one, in, in some ways, like, a big open world, I feel like, feels more like the old-school Japanese RPGs. Like, I, I tend to think of, like, stuff like Final Fantasy 16 or Chrono Trigger as, like, the first open world games, because the world felt seamless, right? Even if exactly. it wasn't. Um, whereas you get to like Final Fantasy 12 or Final Fantasy 10 or Final Fantasy 16 and they have these node-based maps and it feels, you know, less open world than open world games. So it's like, it's all, it's all like games influence each other. They're influenced by other games and it all becomes sort of like a, Take a little bit of each and then make your yeah, sort of own, but yeah. we're, they're all based sort of the same. Like, like I said, yeah. almost every game, except for like, obviously like the old school games that you're coming out with and some of the remakes, but everything is literally RPG based and open world based nowadays. Like that's the cookie cutter. Everyone takes away from now how you morph it and add your special nuances to it or make it third person versus first. And this and that is what force and shapes the game, obviously. Right. But yeah, no, I, it, it, it's just so weird how, like, because, okay, I'll, I'll admit it right now. I'm not a huge JRPG fan. I'm a yeah. huge RPG fan. Yeah. But here's the thing, though. My favorite type of games aren't RPGs. Like, but if you ask me what my top five games are of all time, I'll put five. I still use Final Fantasy III because that's what it was called yeah. on the SNES. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's how I played it as. So that one for sure. And Legend of Zelda, A, a Link to the Past. Those are like my two favorite RPG slash JRPGs of all time. And now, even looking back, even though it's not turn-based, you could consider The Legend of Zelda being a JRPG. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. uh, That question came up on Twitter. And, like, (laughs) people are like, well, I mean, you explore a world. There are dungeons. Exactly. You have side quests. You beat a boss. You level up. You get more health. So, like, you're leveling up. Yes. You know, it's like... There's equipment. It like, you know, where do you draw that line and say, oh, no, it doesn't have this, so it's not a JRPG. Does it have to check enough boxes? Right. And so, like, in the book, I, I do address Zelda, and I say, like, okay. I, you know, like, that I don't think that, like, Legend of Zelda, I mean, Zelda and the Dragon Quest games and the early ones in the Final Fantasy games, they had a lot in common. Um I, I think their Venn diagrams overlap, and I say this a lot, that, like, whether it is or it isn't, I think the Venn diagrams overlap so much that you can discuss them okay. in the same conversation yeah. without it feeling out of place, right? Like, there are so many similar philosophies that overlap Legend of Zelda with more traditional JRPGs. So, like, you know, I, I don't think it's useful saying, oh, no, this isn't a JRPG, or yes, this is a JRPG. It's like, yeah, like, it features an explorable overworld and, like, powering your character up and, you know, like... Is Secret of Mana a JRPG? I was just going to mention, that's another one of my top five of all time. Yeah, so like, how, can you say, because it has numbers, like stat-based level ups, does that make it a JRPG versus Zelda that has like, you know, basically like like icon-based level Like, I don't know, like to me, that regular sort of like gatekeeping is just not really useful or interesting, right? I'd rather look at like why these games 
overlap and why they're also different. Like what happens if you take an explorable sort of semi-open world and put a, a an action style combat system versus a turn-based combat system underneath it. Like how does that change the way that you need to design levels and how the character or the player interacts yeah. with the world and stuff, Such you know, like, you know, it, it just doesn't seem useful to say, Oh, it's no, it's not a JRPG or it is, or it's, you know, like, it, it's just like, it's, it's a spectrum. Right. And it's like, there's no, there's no binary. It was simpler back when it was the NES and I guess even like the Apic and 16-bit era. It was a little bit easier yeah. to distinguish because, like I said, back then, all the NES RPGs or JRPGs, I could not play any of them. I, I did not know what I – maybe I was just not intelligent enough as a young child, but I, it was not for me. That was not video games in my opinion. It was work. Yeah. But then I started appreciating because then, like, because I didn't like the original Zeldas, but then Link to the Past came out. Oh my God, hook, line, and sinker. Then, like I said, (laughs) Final Fantasy VI. And then I even went, and on the Sega side, Wonder Boy and Monster Land, like, that's an RPG, and you level up, like, you go through different levels and stuff. And it's like, and then that's when my mind just blew up. Then Diablo, there's another good example of a good RPG on the PC, right? So then that's when the branches started. And now it's like, I appreciate it and I love like the Octopaths of the world and now even yeah. we, I don't even know how we didn't mention it the Final Fantasy Pixel remixes that are all coming out yeah. soon that just came out of nowhere which will be available yeah. I think like next week as of this re- recording or something 21st I think see okay two weeks so it's like oh my god like we are spoiled now and I can't wait to delve yeah. back into those games but again it's hard for me to go back and appreciate those games because the quality of life is not in those games yeah. So I, I'll, I don't think I'll ever like them. Now with the remakes, yeah. oh my yeah. god, thank you so yeah. much for these yeah. remakes. I'm, I'm loving all of this stuff. I um, yeah. I mean, I play a lot of the original ones, so I have my super, my childhood Super Nintendo hooked up. I have a good for you. a tube TV, a CRT. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have multiple CRTs hooked up um, with a bunch of game consoles, and so I do go back and play those old games. And some of them are easier to play than others. Okay. Um, some of them, you know, like the really great ones, the Final Fantasy VI's, the Chrono Triggers, those are still pretty easy to play. Some of the other ones, and I find that especially the PlayStation era JRPGs oh, no, don't can, be a li- can be a little challenging. Yeah. And so ultimately, like, for me, I want these games to be accessible. It's so hard to just play any of them, right? And so whether you have, like, full-blown remakes like Final Fantasy VII Remake, which is like a sequel and a remake right uh you know like that's like that's over the top right but like the pixel remasters are such a great example of like taking these old games giving them a bit you know a little bit of a polish but mm-hmm. like adding the quality of life features and stuff that oh, make it approachable for people you know at our age right like yeah. with families and jobs you know like the hardest the absolute hardest thing going back to these old games on original consoles is like save points that, you know like yes. I, I played through Zeno Gears last year <sighs> And, like, sometimes it would be, like, an hour and a half between save points. And, like, I I can't do that. I know. It's <laughs> you know? true. And so, like, just the like just adding sleep functionality or autosave, oh, like, changes. That's, that's not, or even rewind. Way. That's a huge rewind, one for me. Exactly. Oof. Yeah. So, like, you screw up in a battle and your save's going to put you 20 minutes back. Mm-hmm. You rewind and it saves you time. Like, time is so precious as adults, right? Um, and so like, I think that that kind of stuff and making these games accessible, not just like, oh, you can go out and buy it actually. Like there's so many games that are lost because you just can't even buy them, but making them accessible in terms of like allowing them to fit into, you know, anybody's lifestyle, I think is great. That's why I, the switch is such an incredible RPG console because of that, right? Like it's great for extended play sessions on your TV, or you can pick it up 
and play for 15 minutes while you're waiting for something mm-hmm. and then you know hit the home button put it down at the drop of a hat and you're good to go right like i you know i can't play xenogears when my kids are home because who knows what's gonna happen <laughs> right no. like you know and i who knows when i'm gonna get to a safe spot but uh modern games have all those quality of life improvements that allow them to fit into our lives in, in a way that that just didn't work i didn't play a lot of japanese rpgs for a long time outside of handhelds because you know after i moved uh we you know my wife and i moved to a new city so she could go to university i got a new job it was like i just didn't have the ability to sit down in front of the tv um and know that i was going to be able to carve out x number of hours you know to like put in enough time to like you know get through a safe spot and and the stories that i need needed to and so like i dropped jrpgs for a little while uh, and then they started coming back in a, in a more accessible form. And that's, I think, also when I started getting back into it. So what was the first JRPG that had you hook, line, and sinker? Yeah. So, I mean, like you, I actually didn't, re- you know, like my first impression of JRPGs was not good. So right. when I was a kid, I like, I loved side scrollers and platformers. So like I beat had a Game ups, Boy. stuff like that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I had, yeah, I beat em up. So I had a Game Boy. I loved Super Mario Land 2 and Super oh, Mario Land. Awesome. Um, we would rent an nes but the game boy was my first my first console okay so yeah super mario land one and two uh and then teenage mutant ninja turtles follow the foot clan like i love follow the foot clan right beating up uh beating up the foot clan was great right that's what i wanted to do and uh, one time i was at my friend's cousin's house and he had a game boy i was like okay Okay. this this is cool this kid's cool he's like he showed me what he was playing and right it was like the slow map like grid based movement. Right. I was like, well, this is kind of late. And then like the screen <laughs> yeah. shattered and this sure. static tiger uh, showed up and there was a menu. I was like, eh, no, like yeah, yeah. it's all good. Yeah. You, you take your game boy back. I want my teenage mutant Ninja turtles back. And that was, um, final fantasy adventure or final fantasy legend two. Uh, and so I didn't like it. And for a number of years, I was like, I don't like RPGs. I was lame. Like, right. I don't want to play any yeah, of those. I get it. And then one night, my, uh, like, my parents hired a babysitter, come over, look out after me and my brothers. And after my little brothers were in bed, he pulled out a game called Final Fantasy three and popped in the Super oh, NES. And, and that, like, so that was good. it. That was right. Over. And like, I just like, I have like <sighs> distinct memories of him stepping onto Like you start the game because he started a new game for us. So we played yeah, through yeah. the beginning of the game. You, you know, you, you go into the mines oh. as Terra and she steps on the first safe spot and the screen flashes blue and it makes a sound as mm-hmm. like that to me is just like safety. And I just like, I remember like the tension and then like, there, you, I think you fight, fight one battle before you get to that safe spot. But, right. uh, but yeah, like that to me just like resonates. And so Final Fantasy six, Final Fantasy three is sort of what made me a JRPG fan. And then it was Chrono Trigger that took me into like obsessed obsession. Okay. Cause after Final Fantasy six, I was like, I had to know like what, like who made this and how do I get more? And so like I poured over video game magazines looking for every little tidbit of chrono trigger news i could get um got it for my birthday a few months after it released and like that was it that was over and that's still my favorite game of all time how about physical form rpgs like obviously there's the dungeon and dragons yeah. movie that's out now were you a yeah. fan of, i know you're a fan of magic the gathering and we're gonna get into that because i am too yeah. that's as far as i go i was that's never fun. a dungeon and yeah. dragons type of guy but yeah, yeah. were you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah so okay. we played a lot of magic um the gathering but we also played a lot of dungeons and dragons in high school oh, um okay. and had it. a lot of fun doing it we could never stick to a campaign okay. right so we would play we might get two sessions out of our characters and then it would just fall apart oh shit and then we'd start up you know a few weeks later we'd start up another campaign right, right. and stuff but like but yeah we played a lot and i really enjoyed it and i liked tabletop rpgs a ton um and then you know again 
high school ends and you kind of drift apart from from your friends and stuff. I'm still pretty close with a lot of them. Um, and so I was starting to buy, you know, as I, I became an adult, my kids got a little older. I was buying, I've been got, buying guidebooks and stuff again and wanted to get into it. Pandemic made that hard. But, um, sure. but you know, I picked up, um, or actually for my birthday, one of my friends uh, who I've known forever got me the Pathfinder beginner box. And it's been great to, to play with my kids. And so it comes with like oh. a reversible, like, um, dry or wet erase map so okay. you can like you know one side is a cave and one side is just a, a plain grid yeah, yeah. and a bunch of like little character standees and an, an adventure sure. module and all the basic rules and so like me and my kids have played that a ton right oh, and awesome. so like introducing them young and every time we yeah. play like yeah it's the same map but like Cheers. you know one time i my daughter just didn't want to do any combat and so every situation we got into she like figured out how to negotiate with <laughs> the goblins right That's like cool. To get them to put, like, instead of yeah. defeating the, the goblins to steal their ladder so we could climb up the cliff, yeah. she figured out how to negotiate with them to get them to just put the ladder up for us. And so, like, you know, having those experiences, uh, even in that, you know, in that small sort of low stakes environment was, right. like, so refreshing to be able to, to connect with people that way in the way that I did, as you know, when I was a kid and a teenager. Um, so, yeah, big fan. I would like to play more. It's it's hard with, with kids and then with the pandemic and stuff, trying to trying to fit it in amongst everything else. But, uh, but I, yeah, I, I bought a lot of guidebooks last year, <laughs> which I also like just as, like, just for entertainment and just as inspiration for, like, world building and stuff. I feel like, sure. like, uh, RPG guidebooks are, are some of the most fascinating and creative world building uh, uh, resources out there. They're just, they're, they're great. Yeah. Uh, yeah well it, now obviously magic to gathering now you also have card based turns yes. like yeah. speaking of turn based this is the original turn based is with yeah. cards yeah, like yeah. you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah. this i got heavily deep into this again I, yeah. I believe it was beginning of high end of elementary beginning of high school that's when it was popular yeah. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. was my age group and oh yeah i got into it deep my friend like we had house rules we had everything going like it, it was crazy how these regular like well not regular but i think what it was really as children was the artwork and the complexity of this game. Like it was just easy. It's like turn-based cards. You just, I know people are not going to probably understand if they're together, but you just tap the card and it does something like, and I don't know if you were like how I was, but in my mind, if I was to tap or to place a fireball, I could mentally see oh, yeah. that fireball oh, going yeah. across. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean like the ability of, for that game to transport people into the situation, oh. like absolutely. Like it, and I, th- I feel like early Japanese RPGs did the same thing that like they're this sort of like abstract graphics, like the, the low resolution pixel art required the reader, the player to like really interpret what was going on on screen and like have it play out in the he- their head. Like same way a book, like you read the action in a, in a book and it plays out in your head and Magic the Gathering was so good at that because it gave it like the art gave you just enough. Right, it gave you a depiction of the fireball or the you know uh, the, the creature that you're attacking with, um, but then the rest plays out in your head, right? In that way, and I mean, yeah, magic was probably actually my gateway into like fantasy. As a kid, I was a big science fiction nerd, so oh, I like you know I love okay. Star Trek. See, um, me too. Tom exact same thing um, happened to me. Yeah, and I didn't like fantasy. I was like, Same oh, here. it's like all yeah. like unicorns and princesses. Exactly. Like, you know, quote-unquote girly or whatever. Sure. And for a long time, I didn't really think... To, I always thought it was Tolkien that got me into fantasy. Because mm. um, I read The Hobbit, like, right. after grade six. Okay. Um, but then I was writing a, a piece about the history of 
Magic the Gathering, at digital Magic the Gathering. So okay. it's going all the way back and thinking about that and talking to a lot of people about Magic and playing Magic as a kid. And I was like, no, like it was Magic the Gathering. That made me realize, like, oh, there's so much here that I was interested in. Right. And like, was I wasn't interested in, in princesses and unicorns at the time, right? Like, I was a boy. I was supposed to be into like dragons, and fireballs, and <laughs> sure. swords, and fighting, and all that kind of stuff. You know. Now I love Magic the Gathering because it has a whole like spectrum of amazing art and archetypes and it brings in you know like all sorts of fantasy tropes whether those are you know like extrapolations of like unicorns and they have you know they have princesses that run the gamut from like you know badass warrior princesses to like magical princesses to everything in between right and so they created something and they saw the opportunity for magic to be something that people like self-inserted themselves into and could see what they wanted to be and they've just all they've done over the past 30 years is grow that outward to be as inclusive as possible and so like you know i played magic the gathering way back when with unlimited and, and ice age and and played all through high school, all the way up to uh, Tempest and, and Mirage. Oh, wow. And then I fell off um, after that okay. a little bit. Um, and then 20, I think it was 2013, so 10 years ago, Dragon's Maze was the latest expansion. Okay. And I saw some packs in the, the window. <laughs> and they I called like, your name. <laughs> uh, I said to my wife, I was like, ah, I know I shouldn't, but I really want to buy some packs of Magic cards. Right. And so at the time, like my friend, again, a childhood kindergarten friend, like, yeah, and yeah. I were living close together we were like yeah let's just buy some decks right like sure. we'll just buy some decks we'll have them they'll be like a board game they go in the closet when we want to play some magic we just pull these decks yeah, yeah. and i mean then now 10 years later i have thousands and thousands of new cards wow. so many decks like That's an absurd crazy. amount of you know value invested into cards and stuff like you, can, you can't just dip your toe into magic right um it's true you can't because then you'll and, never um, win and it and it's not yeah, fun right yeah 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 so you know like and you were talking before we started recording you were talking about like house rules and, and stuff like that and magic is called like rule zero if you're playing commander where it's like okay like let's make sure everybody's having fun right let's make sure that like there's that no one. like you know no nobody's coming in here swinging with a, a 10 out of 10 power deck when everybody else is playing with four out of gotcha. 10 decks, right? you know what see i wish i had that rule because there's some yeah. assholes i'd play with it was literally yeah. it would just they would just have enchantments and easy yeah. one-offs where they just needed one or two land and within yeah. like five or six turns it's game over it's like okay well yeah. what's the point of playing yeah 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 exactly um so i think like you know Magic's at its best when it's inclusive, and you make sure that everybody's there having fun. It's true, um, and it can like enjoy that. the experience. And and I I think Magic offers more ways to do that than it ever has. And so you know, again, once again, over the course of the pandemic, I've played Paper Magic. I don't know if I played Paper Magic since like 2020. Oh sure, um, but I've played a lot of like the digital game online okay. arena, um, which is. Which is really good, uh, but it doesn't. Again, we go back to like ebooks versus physical books. Like I like it's not digital magic, but like I love paper magic. Um, it's just not the same. Know, like, look, I have a card holding this card. Just yeah. the way you yeah. feel, it feels like yeah. it's it's almost like bicycle cards. You know, it's the yeah. original. Like they're not yeah. flimsy. They yeah. still have that same magic smell. I don't know I what know. it is. Like, <laughs> yeah, how do they do that? I know it's it's right? amazing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's like, I don't know, magic's so good. The game's uh, very different than when I started playing. Like, when I started that, playing That's one thing I wanted to know from someone who's been recently playing, because when I started, oh, like, even some of, yeah. 
I guess the moves and even uh, like the titles of certain stuff. I'm like, what the hell is this? I've never heard of Trample, and I've never heard yeah. uh, now that this is really dating me. It goes to show how long I haven't yeah. played. Right? I think the Trample's last time been around for a while, but yeah. Well, see, the last time I physically, I think, actually played a game with someone who knew what they were doing because I've tried to get my wife into it a few times, but it's hard. Yeah. Like if you, if your heart's not into it, it's just hard. Yeah. So the last time I think I physically played a game, uh, don't laugh at me, was in '97. Yeah, yeah, that's right? a little bit before. For I, for me, it would have been about 2000, 2001 when I probably like okay, kind of started to taper off after high school. But yeah, yeah, I think that's sort of a nat- like a natural time for a lot of people to to stop playing. But the game's really accessible now as well. Like oh, perfect then. You know, like you can go into the store and buy two pre-made decks, right, and just play them together, and they're going to be roughly the same power level. Oh, okay. Um. And they're going to be simpler decks, right? Like, part sure. of my problem is, like, you know, my friend and I were like, oh, yeah, we'll just, like, we'll just buy cheap decks. We have a $10 budget for these decks. Okay. Yeah, you yeah. know, but then, like, fast forward two weeks and, our, you know, we're, we're running $400 decks against each other, which is ridiculous. But, like, you don't have to play that way. Um, Magic is, is very, very accessible. And, like, onboarding for new players is a, is a huge emphasis now for, for Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially younger players. So, like, Magic the game is very different. Like, back when you played, creatures weren't very good. No, they Spells weren't. were way overpowered. Yes. Um, and now it's sort of reversed. Like, creatures are, like, crazy compared to, like, you know, really? way back when we started playing. Okay. Um, like, some of the stuff, like, you can get on a two-mana creature, like, still, I'm like, how is this? This isn't okay. <laughs> you know? Um, but, again, you know, but then, like, spells like, you know, Time Walk would be, like, absurdly busted now, right? Mm. Like, and, and Time Walk is a, is a two-mana spell that, that lets you take another turn after after the one you're currently on. Oh, shit. And so, like, you know, the, the dynamics change, and, like, the average card has way more words on it. There's so many rules. But it I've does a good noticed job of, that. You know, yes, explaining you are itself. right. Yeah. So, it's, 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 a, it's a great game. Um, but it, it has changed a lot. It's a lot more complex than it used to be. Now, when you used to play the physical form, did you play winner gets to choose a card from the losers? No. No, no I think, eh? I mean, back in high school, there were definitely... Because, like, anti was, like, a an actual rule in the game. Like, I know like it, is. it was part of the game. And so there were cards that would, like, reference antis. Like, anti cards. So at the beginning of the game, like, for, for people like my who didn't play Magic, at the beginning of the game... The original rule oh, book. Oh, wow. From yeah. 1994. Yeah. Look at that. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you'd ante up a card. So you take a card, each player would draw a random card from your deck, you'd put it out as your ante, and whoever right. won got both those cards. So, like, if you pulled your best card out as ante, and they, you know, like, you wouldn't have it in your deck, and uh, and you, if you lost, you, your opponent got it. And ante, like, that was an actual rule in the game, and it was referenced on some cards, and, I mean, uh, that wasn't my my... See, uh, we well, played with anti, but only if it was like a common card that everyone sure, already yeah, owned, okay. or if it was yeah, like a, yeah. like even we allowed uh, lands to be in it too, because it's yeah. like okay, you lose a land, who cares? Like you sure, know what I mean? But yeah. we would never would, put like, like our big ones, like oh, yeah. never, yeah, yeah, yeah. no way. Uh, I definitely know some people that played anti, and it never goes well, right? Like that's never. Well, that's somebody losing your kids. Card, Can you imagine? Card is like yeah, exactly, and like it, it's so ripe for like older kids to abuse like younger kids and so like oh, you know, that's weren't even allowed too. to ante up at our at our school like okay. that was against the rules um but i was just i'm just risk averse in that way too i never would have done that uh anyway but uh but yeah old magic was wild there's one 
hilarious card where like you play the card and then you have to like you leave your board state as is but then play out another sub game what with the remaining cards in your library and whoever wins that game gets an advantage and then you restart the oh, game shit. In the middle of it. It's, yeah you're gonna have a lot of time for that it's one it's pretty good shahrazad i think it's called <laughs> oh my um, god that's crazy. It was, yeah. So cards back then were pretty, they were pretty crazy in a different way. Um, now cards are just, they're more complex. There's a lot more rules in the game. Sure. But the cards do a really good job of like making sure that they explain how they work. And then like within sets, like the cards and the interactions between cards are, are really well thought out and well balanced for the most part. So when I take um, a beating with my old school card set from 97 versus a new deck today, what do you think? Um... I mean, you're, yeah, I'm, well, yeah, I mean. You know what I mean? Like, that, that, that's another reason why so like, I don't want to yeah. go play now, because yeah. it's like, I'm going to show up with my grandfather deck, kids are going to laugh me out of the stores, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you would get, you, you'd get creamed. There okay. was some, so like, the, like, back in the, like, the history of magic, like, one of the, like, most famous decks is called The Deck, okay. and it was really good, and it was from, like, a long time ago. Um, would it hold up against, like, the best decks nowadays probably not it would be magic's very fast like uh, nowadays okay. they have different formats so standard only uses like current cards it's a bit slower but like you have formats like modern which is considered like a turn four format so like okay. basically like the game's over by turn four which oh, was shit. not the case when you and i played yeah like the game might not be over over but yeah, it's yeah. like one deck will have pulled off like what it needs exactly to win yeah for. okay um and that, that that didn't happen back when we played, right? Like, it, no. games would go on forever, and they would be, like, you know, slog fests. Um, and that's the type of magic I still like. And that's, you know, like, so when magic, like, kind of has a rock, paper, scissors breakdown of, like, there's control decks, there's aggro decks, and then there's mid-range decks. Mm. So, like, control decks go for a really long game, you know, control the pace of play, control what their opponent does, until they, like, out-resource their opponent and win. Aggro decks are just really aggressive, try to win the game as fast as possible. And um, mid-range decks are sort of slow and like to build out a really strong board and, and overwhelm with values sort of right. on the board. I like mid-range decks. And when you get two mm-hmm. mid-range decks going against each other, you can still have some pretty pretty uh, pretty long, complex games. And though that, to me, is when Magic is the most fun. No, of course. And that's what we try to do because I'm going back to house rules and then we'll wrap this up and you could promote whatever you need sure. to promote. It's our house rules were you could only use two colors. Okay. And you yeah. could only have a certain amount of land to card ratio because then if you have all the land, then it's not fair. And if you don't have enough yeah. land, it's not fair. Like, you know what I mean? So we yeah. sort of tried to put that into place. And now piggybacking off that, my two favorite colors was red and black. That's what I used okay. to use all the time. Yeah. I know yeah, yeah. a lot of people say you should use the white, but again, this is old school. A lot of people yeah. said you should use white because you the healing factor and a lot of walls and so forth. Good defense, you know what I mean? So you have yeah, like yeah. a good, but no, me, I was just, I wanted good spells and enchantments from the red and I wanted good creatures from black because yeah, there, yeah. there's a lot of flying, cre- again, this is old school shit. Yeah, but yeah in, this is old school. Yeah. But in your opinion, <laughs> what are your favorite colors to use? And then obviously you sprinkle yeah. in the artifacts, right? So, Sure, sure. Uh, back in the day, I was a red green player all the time, but again, because I like big creatures, right? And so red green was like you green had a big, good amount. big creatures, yeah. right? Uh, and you had lightning bolt, so you could zap. Oh, that was the best. Uh, I always just liked getting a bo- big board and like you know getting in the combat. Uh, nowadays, I almost always play some combination of white and green. Oh, okay. Um, so, which is like Selesnya, and they're like again, they're it's usually creature based. So white green is usually going to be. 
you know, a go wide strategy. So you're going to probably flood the board with a lot of like smaller creatures, but a high volume of them and mm-hmm. like have kind of really efficient, like creature creation. Um, I like, uh, red or I like white, uh, white, blue, oh. green, which is banned, which is fun as well. Blue sort of adds an, a different, uh, dynamic to that um and i still like red green like uh which is still again like aggressive mid-rangey creatures that just like are big and you know high value and once they hit the board they're hard to remove they're hard to beat in combat um i i don't really care for combinations like red black um which often has like maybe like a creature sacrifice theme now um which is interesting actually you know what i have a red black white modern deck that i really like and it sacrifices creatures so I mean, they they all have value, but I definitely tend towards the the, the color combinations that reward like you know creature based strategies rather than control decks that have like you know they have their twenty two lands, they have you know twenty seven spells and then Jesus. one creature, Jesus. and they basically just like you know nobody gets to play magic until they draw their creature and then they just protect their creature and just whittle you down. Like I don't really like control decks. Um, I don't find them fun to play against or play. Uh, So as long as it's like mid rangey, you know, I can do some aggro as well. Oh, there you go. And to leave you on this note, I was such a freak for, for magic because I used to go to Portugal in the summers back then. I even bought Portuguese magic cards and I have them in my deck. So yeah, like you know what i mean like magic's yeah. magic like i just wish i could get back into it it's one of those things that i just wish i could get back into but may, who knows maybe one day go for it there's so many like i found that the magic community can be really welcoming um, okay and and i'm sure you can find groups that are like casual play groups in your city that's true too. Uh, and this goes for anybody like you know magic is like super deep and it can be a huge commitment and a huge money commitment um but it can also be a great you know, casual environment. If you just want to get together and, and turn some cards sideways and play some casual games, like I guarantee there are other people out there, especially people like at our age, like late thirties in their early forties who played magic back when we did in the, in the nineties, right. Early two thousands. Yep. And they want to play it again. Like I think a lot of people our age are getting back into their old, their old hobbies on their old interests. So point. like, it's not too late. It's probably the best time ever to get into magic because there's so many options for it. So, so go for it. So don't, true. Don't let anything stop you. No, I will most definitely. All right, Aiden, thank you so much for coming aboard today. It's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. It's been a blast. Plug whatever you want to promote, socials, work, anything. Floor's all yours, my friend. Sure. sure yeah. So you can find me on the internet <laughs> on Twitter for as long as it's around uh, at a dribble of ink. So a D R I B B L E O F I N K. That's the name of my old blog at dribble of ink. I'm on their way too much. Uh, you can find me there. You can find me on, um, at my newsletter, Astrolabe, uh, which is, um, a geek focused newsletter. I write about science fiction, fantasy books. I write about video games, retro gaming. I write about writing. I write about pretty much everything. Uh, every issue has a big feature. It has a section called Lake to the Party where I play an old video game that I've maybe never played before, um, probably never played before. I'll play it for an hour. I'll write up my impressions, uh, you know, good and bad. Some of the games I've played have been really bad. Some of them have been really great and big surprises. And I'll often let my readers pick the game that I play. Uh, and then I recommend books and I, you know, have links to my work. I have links to interesting articles uh, in every issue. And so you can find that at astrolabe.aidenmoher.com. Uh, it's free to sign up. Um, you'll get all the main issues for free uh, if you sign up for that. 
And then I have a book, which I wrote, which we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. called Fight Magic Items, the history of Final Fantasy Dragon Quest and the rise of Japanese RPGs in the West. It's available anywhere you can buy books. Uh, you can get it online, but you can also go to your local bookstore, and uh, if they don't have it on the shelf, they'll be able to order it in for you. Um, it's a, like I said, it's a really, I made an effort to make it approachable. And so you said earlier, like, you aren't a jrpg fan but you like final fantasy you know what final fantasy is and that's you know the core type of reader that i wrote this book for my editor and i said like okay who's the audience and i said you know doesn't have to be like jrpg fans they probably like video games they probably know what final fantasy is and so Mm. i think there's a lot of nuggets in there for people who are really deep into the history of these games but i think there's also a really compelling narrative about like you know creative people and what pushes them to create what pushes them to explore new boundaries how do they grow over the course of their careers and how do they look back on the work that they've done and and what they've created as a foundation for future creators um and that's fight magic items it's available everywhere Awesome. And for myself, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under Finger Styles. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, the podcast app. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, comments, anything you want to get off your chest at the podcast app at gmail.com. And if this is the first time listening to the podcast and you like what you've heard, please go back and listen to episodes featuring other writers and authors such as Gabe Durham, Elise Snore, and Brock Wilbert, to name just a few. Okay, one last question before I let you go, my friend. Yes, yes. You can only choose one system and only have access to the GRPG catalog. What system are you picking? Okay. I mean, the trick answer for me is the... uh, You can go with something like the Nintendo DS because then you get access to the Nintendo DS library and the Game Boy library. Um, so you get everything. You get all the Final Fantasies. You get Chrono Trigger. You get a whole bunch That's of stuff. True. But um, I think, like in terms of like just one console, like one one library of games, I tend towards the Super Nintendo over the PlayStation. Um, I think that like the Chrono Triggers and the Final Fantasy Sixes and the Terranigmas went out over the Chrono Crosses and the Xenogears, uh, mostly because I, f- I find them to be a bit shorter. A bit more like they hold up to replays really nicely. Um, so I would say Super Nintendo. Uh, but, it, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. It's hard. Yeah, I know. Super Nintendo. Man, it's hard. But I like uh, the Game Boy, too, has like all the Final Fantasies. Game Boy Advance. I was going to say Game Boy Advance uh, is a good one, Game too. Boy Advance is so good, right? Uh, ah, it's hard. Or like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's hard. <laughs> we could stay here all night. PlayStation 2 is incredible also. It has Dragon Quest Eight. It has Dragon Quarter. It has Final Fantasy Twelve. But no, got to choose a Super Nintendo. There you yeah, go. Right back to the beginning for me. On that note, he's Aiden. I'm Steve. This is the podcast. Peace. <laughs>